0: We're beginning a new series on the Psalms. What I can promise you is that we're not going to uh, go through all 150, (laughs) um, unless you want to. Uh, But we're going to start at the very beginning. So um, if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Psalm 1? And uh, we will read the, the whole psalm. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff and the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked uh, is, uh, will perish. Um, what I would like to do. Uh, is explain a little bit of where this series is going and why it matters that we look at the Psalms uh, with three uh, observations um, about just the Psalms in general. Then uh, I'd like to sort of have a little poke around uh, in Psalm 1 to see whether there's anything there that we can pick up. And then I'd like to try and illustrate uh, the way uh, in which this Psalm points Uh, towards Jesus which has been a little bit of a theological debate amongst the leadership team but you can ask Phil Harmon about that at another stage and uh, it's not why Steve has gone away for this weekend either Uh, he's just uh, uh, romancing his wife Uh, so you're all right with that one just before you ask Uh, so firstly I'd like to suggest that the Psalms are instructive about God and about man, and about the lives that we lead. When we read the Psalms, we are meant to learn things about God, and we are meant to see human nature in its rawness. That's the idea of it, and about how people live with all sorts of different things. We could have actually uh, written a psalm this week called the Psalm of Lewis and Kate. That could have been it. We could have gone through the week and we could have put it together and and that would have been there and we would have read. That could have been our psalm. We could have written another psalm. Psalm 2 could have been Fleur's salsa party and everybody failing. I mean, I still am amazed that without standing next to my daughter who was dancing with somebody else, that she managed to tread on my toe. We... You could have found that in Psalm 2, as, as it were. That's what they are all about. But some poetry actually makes no claim to instruct the mind, but the Psalms are there to instruct us. And one of the pointers of this is, is, uh, is the use made by the Psalms in the New Testament. So Matthew 22 and verse 44 is a, is a use of that Psalm. And, more, and uh, Psalm 1 also introduces us to the book of the Psalms. The, so, the book begins, I would like to suggest, in, so, in verse 2, where Psalm, the psalmist says this, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now bear with me, the word for law is Torah, And the general meaning for Torah is instruction. In other words, we are going to cover the whole range of God's instructions to us. What does he want to say? How does he want to instruct us? What does he want to speak into? That's what the Psalms does. So the entire book of Psalms is introduced by a call to meditate on God's instruction. Listen! So what God has to say is what the psalmist begins by saying. Then if you add to that the way the book of Psalms is, is structured, it's divided into five books that begin with Psalm 1, Psalm 42, Psalm 73, Psalm 90 and Psalm 107. And at each collection of the Psalms, it will end with a sort of like a special doxology that, that sort of marks the end of each book. And from very early times, uh, these five divisions have been a, con- there's been a conscious effort to make the Psalms parallel with the first five books of Moses, the first five books in the Old Testament. So they parallel with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are called the law books. The law books. So when Psalm 1 introduces the five books uh, in the Psalter by saying that the righteous person meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, it probably means that these five books uh, of the Psalms, not just the five books of Moses, are the law of the Lord. The instruction of the Lord. What, what he wants his people to listen to. What he wants them to meditate on day and night. So for this and other reasons, we can see that these are instructive uh, about God's they're instructive about you and I. My father used my father used to say that, he, that every emotion under the sun is found there. Uh, Wisby it calls the Psalms. Meet yourself uh, in the Psalms. There's a Psalm for you. You probably know that, don't you? You've probably found your experience, and you've said, "Yeah, that's me. That's exactly how I am going through." And uh, so, and they're meant to instruct you through those things what does god has to say about you feeling those sort of things that's the first one so the second one is that the psalms are songs and poems i do apologize if you know this stuff uh, i'll challenge you a little bit later but just bear with me the word psalm means that they're meant to be read or sung or if you like poetry Uh, And the point of this is that poetry or singing is actually meant to stir you up. It's meant to get under the skin, as it were. It's meant to get through into the affections of the heart. We're not just meant to think about God. We're actually meant to feel with God, which is what the psalmist uh, tries to get us to do. The psalms are, let's get under the skin here. I get down there. And if you read the Psalms only for doctrine, you're not reading them for what they are. Now, I might get in trouble here because being a good strict Baptist, that means the roof opens. And I know that, you know, 30 years ago I wouldn't have said that. But let me say that again. If you read the Psalms for only doctrine, you're not reading them for what they are. They, heaven's sake, these are psalms, these are songs, these are poetry, these are musical, these are worship. These are the reasons that, that human beings express, uh, uh, express truth. That's how they do it. They, they felt these things, so they wrote these things, they felt these things, so they became worship. They're, the idea of this is actually to awaken and express our truth to fit what we are feeling here i'm feeling this lord this is how it is so i will express it in that way so one of the reasons that the psalms are so deeply loved uh, by so many christians is exactly that you're there aren't you if i said to you you know well, well i'm just going through this generally most christians would say yeah i Turn to the Psalms for that. You know, I, I'm feeling this. I have found that in the Psalms. It's just the, the way that it works. And if you actually look at the Psalms, you'd probably be amazed at all sorts of emotions that you can find there. That actually, with the, the emotion is to drive us to God. So the emotion doesn't stand alone. If you, you will, We'll look at this later. The emotion finds a way to God. And often what people do is they say, I am, and they forget the rest of the psalm because actually the answer is often in the psalm. So they say, oh, I'm miserable. Yeah, you are. Now what does the rest of the psalm say? Tells you how to get out of it. But actually the emotions are all there. Things like this. Let me just fire some at you. You're not going to be quick enough for this. But look, loneliness. I am lonely and therefore afflicted. Psalm 25, love. I love you, O oh Lord, with all of my strength. Or, let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Sorrow. What, a, what an incredible... Imo- my life is spent with sorrow. Yeah? You, you're all going, uh, not you? Regret. I am sorry for my sin. Contrition, you know this one. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51. Discouragement. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 42. Shame. Shame has covered my face. 44. Exaltation. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts there's a psalm looking look at that that's incredible marveling marveling this is the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes that's something is joy you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound what a wonderful statement psalm 4 Gladness, I will be glad and exalt you. Fear, serve the Lord with fear. Angry, be angry but do not sin. Grief, grief. This is, this is Kate and Lewis. Grief. My eyes waste away because of grief. That's, a, that's an emotion, isn't it? Desire, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Hope, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even when we hope in you. Broken heartedness, the Lord is near to the broken hearted. Gratitude, I will thank you in the company of a great congregation. Zeal, zeal for your house. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Pain. I am afflicted and in pain. Confidence. Though wars arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now you realize that you're all Christian schizophrenics. They're all there, aren't they? But actually more explicitly than in any other book in the Bible, the, the Psalms are designed and to awaken but also to shape our emotions. They're the, they're the opener And they're the lid. That's what they're there to do. They open you. So some of you need to be opened. Some of you need a lid on it. That's the Psalms. Ask yourself this. Are you an open or are you a lid? That's all you have to do. That's what the Psalms do. I'm not going to do that. You're going to do that. And it's what happens when you read the Psalms in the way that they're intended To be read, you end up being shaped by them because they are designed to affect you, open you, put a lid on you. The Lord says, Let me give you an example to this, then we'll move on. Discouragement Psalm 42 Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 42. I'd like to say, as a pastor, I've had that described to me, usually on an annual basis now, for 20-something years. People have said to me, this is my experience. Psalm 51 often is another one. They've said, this is it. Actually, it isn't it. It never was it. Because actually, it's a question first. What on earth is going on in here then? Is, that, is the, the Midland way of doing it. What on earth is this? You know, and it's into the, oh, turmoil. And it's, and it's often given that way. Actually, it's a question. What the heck is this? That's what it says. The psalmist then goes on to give you the answer to those things. Oh, you are feeling like this. Okay, this is what you do to remedy yourself. That's what the psalm does. He accepts the emotion understands the emotion and then says this is how God would like to instruct you in that emotion and he asks you the question will you now be instructed even in your anxiety and your cast downness and your turmoil because he says this firstly go to the house of God go where I don't feel like it will you be instructed by the Lord go oh no go go yes you've got to go Because this is how the Lord's going to help you. Go to the house of God. What's the other one? Hope. Get hope in you. Start reading about hope. Start worshipping about hope. Start rejoicing about hope. Start thinking about hope. Stop thinking about despair. Think about hope. Get hope in you. Argue, as it were. Why are you cast down? Okay, hope's coming. Argue hope into you. Secondly, thirdly, fourthly, ninthly, sing, sing, sing. I sat with Kate Nokocha in a bed yesterday with all sorts of doctors in strange clothes. They look like aliens, doctors, when they dress up. They look like they've gone to bed. Where's the white coat gone that used to be on emergency 10? Was it emergency ward 10? They don't do that now. They wear flip-flops. What is flip-flops? They're not on holiday. they do at work. So I said, to, I said to Kate, Kate, what do you do that encourages you in the Lord? Whispered in her ear, and she said, I sing. So when I came a little bit later, um, I, when I came a little bit later, we went back again, and she's lying in bed and she's singing. She's singing. She's singing in the midst of grief and sorrow. And the midwife going, she's been singing for hours. She heard the instruction of the Lord and she was beginning to sing truths into her mind. Sing, folks. Go around the house. Just shout a bit and sing. What does the psalmist then go on and say? It says, remember. Remember. Make a list. Remember, these are all the things that God has done. Keep going back to them and say, no, these are the things. And then it says, thirst. If you do these things, Psalm 4, by the time you get to the end, what does the psalmist say? Because they're instructions from the Lord, because the Holy Spirit is with us, you will come through. You will come through. Okay, thirdly, you know this one. We'll do this one quickly. The Psalms are inspired by God. They're not merely the word of man, but also the word of God. What that means is that God guided and written, wrote and arranged them so that they could teach us, so that God could teach us through these people. And one of the reasons that we need to believe that is that Jesus used them. Jesus used them to instruct people. Mark 12, 36, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 Later on, John ten thirty five he quotes Psalm eighty two, and then he says, then he, he quotes that in context, and he says about Psalm eighty two, Scripture cannot be broken. John thirteen eighteen he says, uh, uh, sorry, he, quote, he quotes Psalm forty one nine uh, 19, nine, sorry, and says Scripture will be fulfilled. So Jesus has implicit faith in the reliability of the Psalms. So if Jesus has faith in them, please do. He obviously thinks that they work for the audience. They are there. So therefore, when we're, we're reading and singing uh, uh, psalms and that sort of stuff, we're, we, we're being shaped by God. God's getting hold of us when we get hold of them. I just want to share something with you. And, and that is based on the last series, but just, we we'll just put that in. The Shaping Power of Psalms. We've just completed a series on the seven sayings of the cross. And I have to be really honest, as the guy that has prepared most of them, I guess, I've found those seven words have actually shaped my thinking. Just I've studied and looked at them. I, I've, there's new stuff that sort of, oh. And it was that sort of thing. I don't know if you've ever done that. You're reading your Bible, and going, oh, and oh. You know, you don't know what to say, really, oh, how do you do that? Uh, it affected my life, affected my thinking. I know sometimes that I go to pastor's meetings. I mean, you've heard me say this before. And I, and, and I, I look and I think, why do you want to move off the cross? You know, they want to get on, they want to do stuff. And I keep, keep thinking, it's the cross. Why do you want to do that? It's, and it's just, that has affected me. But, but I realized that actually... If you ask the questions, ask one of the questions, what were the first Christians shaped by? One of the answers would be the Psalms. The Psalms. The book was the most often uh, Old Testament quoted book in the New Testament. It was actually their worship book. It was their poetry book. It was their meditation book uh, of the church. And alongside the teachings uh, of the apostles, and the teachings of Jesus, the Psalms were as a book that shaped the early church. And I just think, well, if that helped to shape the early church in, in, the, in the way that it shaped it in the book of Acts, boy, do, do you not want some shaping like that? I will have some of that shaping, because and that's what I'd like it to do for us. I would like to, to jumpstart, as it were, that use of the psalms for some. I'd like to try and see whether we can deepen and advance it for others. I believe that as we look into this book, we should aim to see God-centered, Jesus-exalting, psalm-saturated thinking and feeling in our church. I believe this kind of thinking, according to the Acts of the Apostles, can only bear great fruit that helps us to care for people, and, and that honours Jesus. So let's, start, let's get into the psalm very briefly. Probably think, oh, he's gone on, really. I'll just go on anyway if you're a visitor. Don't worry, just go on. Um, as we turn to Psalm 1, we're going to just confirm a lot of what the overview of the psalms does. But the trouble is with this psalm is that it's worthy of Three sermons that 's the problem. which bit do I do so i 'm just going to do two bits uh, and then and then try and point you to Jesus, if I can. So is bit one? Bit one is this: Why does the psalmist begin in the way that he does? Why does the psalmist begin? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats. sits. seats in the sit of coffers seats in the seat of scoffers <laughs> why, don't, why doesn't the psalmist just say this don't be wicked, don't sin and don't scoff full stop why draw attention to the sinner, the wicked and the scoffer why focus on why we look for influence why stick a sign that says don't touch wet paint that sort of thing don't be influenced by the wicked. Don't be influenced by the sinner. Don't be influenced by the scoffer. Ooh, why? It's that sort of thing, isn't it? We, we just... We, have you ever said to the kids, you know, where you ever, you ever said, Mommy and Daddy are just having a glass of wine. It's really nice. And then you leave it on the side. And then you leave the room. It's that sort of thing, isn't it? It's that sort of feeling. The reason is that the contrast he wants to draw is not wickedness versus righteousness. The contrast that he wants to draw is being influenced from one place versus being influenced from another place. Being shaped in one way versus being shaped in another. By being shaped in our thinking and our feeling by the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer, Verses being shaped by the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord found in the Psalms. So my question is this, and I'm going to fire this out and ask you this. And if it hits you hard, then so be it. Who influences you? Who influences you? What influences you? How do you make your? De- How are the decisions that you have made? Teenagers, 20s, 70s, who influences you? In verse 1, the way that he prepares to contrast in verse 2 is that he says this: don't give your attention to the world the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer, so that you delight in their ways. Don't, don't do that because you will end up delighting in it. I know you're going to squirm, some of you, but it's okay. You're going to have to squirm. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night. Let's just put this out straight. Nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of obligation. Ooh, I must be wicked. They don't do that. Nobody stands in the way of sinners out of duty. It is my my God, give my you know my parental duty to sin. They don't do that. I said the wrong word nearly. And nobody sits in the seats of scoffers out of responsibility. I have a huge responsibility to sit and with these sort of people. That is absolute poppycock. We walk and we stand and we sit there because actually we want to. We want to. Nobody told you to. You want to sit there. And you want to sit there because you've been watching them so intently that what they now do is very attractive to you. You went there, you sat there, you listened to them, and now you delight, as it were, in them. That's the way that the psalmist speaks here. If you like, if you want to use the psalmist word, we've gone and we've sat with the wicked and the sinful and the scoffers, and we've meditated, not on the Lord, but on them. That's whom we have meditated on. We've, med- we've looked at it, we thought... This is worth giving further consideration to. I will stay here for a little while. So you start looking at the stuff that the world produces. And you look at it and you think about it so much that you think, I like this. This is good stuff. And so then you walk and you stand in the sits in their council and you put yourself in a place that no one else did apart from you. No one else did apart from you. That's why, in the contrast in verse two, refers not to duty and not to obedience, but to delight and meditation. And the point is that the only hope against the pleasures of the world and the pleasures of Jesus is that is that the only hope against that is that that our pleasures might be a, a, awakened by something else the truth is that you are there because your pleasure and your delight is not awakened by something else so the pleasures of the word and the pleasures of jesus can be awakened by looking at them long enough and therefore they become your delight do you know one of the, the huge problems that we have in the church, just globally, is a lack of people reading the Word of God. And we can batter people to death, but actually, what the what the psalmist says here is that if we can begin to look at Jesus, begin to as it look look in the Psalms, what does that old chorus say? And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of what? His glory and grace. And the reason that those look so good is that the glory and grace yet hasn't come up and shone so much that you look at that and you go, Pah. that's the problem. You look at that and you go, wow. And the reason you go, wow, is that you, you haven't meditated on, you haven't seen the glory and the delight that the psalmist says that you can have in Jesus There is such a delight and such a pleasure to be had in his word and in him that you go, nah, to that. You don't go and sit there. So this whole book is designed to shape your thinking through meditation and to shape your feeling so that you might have a delight. Here's some Greek words for delight made English, as it were. Look at this. This is what comes with Jesus. This is what comes with the Word of God. Here they are. Delight. Enjoyment. This is what happens. Pleasure. Happy. Glad. It's not an American series, but it is called glee. Satisfaction. All those come so that you look and you desire, you look at him and you think, No. The problem is that you've placed yourself here. You do not know the pleasures of God. You do not know the pleasures of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So that looks good. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's what the scripture says. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's the grace of God speaking to you right now. Because some of you are close to sinner, scoffer, and weak. You are so close. And this is the word of God. Choose this day whom you will serve. There is a pleasure out there that is greater than any pleasure the world can offer. It is wonderful. So, secondly, why does verse 3 read like it does? Why does it say, when you meditate on God, why, sorry, why doesn't it say? And when you meditate on God's instruction in the Psalms, and you delight in what you see, then you will not act wickedly, and you will not act sinfully, and you will not scoff. That would have worked out quite well, wouldn't it? It would have rounded things off. The answer is back to what we've just been talking about. The answer is that the Psalmist once to see that our life is to be like a tree-bearing fruit, not a labourer or a person occasionally picking fruit. That's not where we... It's, but one, one picks either for work or hungry. I need to do this now. Or, you know, that sort of thing. The other is to do with design and purpose. So you don't occasionally go and grab a little bit of fruit from church. Grab a bit of fruit from the Word of God. No, you actually were designed to bear fruit. Your design was pleasure. Your design was, was to delight in Jesus. That's what you were made to do. You were planted there. It's not oh, just this occasional bit of joy. no. You would look what the scripture says here verse 3 he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers let me just say you are designed not to wither not to wither and shrivel up but designed so that you would bear fruit So I want to encourage you to win the fight with delight or by delight. I'm going on, but let's go on a bit further. Here is the picture of Christian life. There are streams of water on offer. Streams. There is fruit on offer forever. This is the life of God that flows through the Spirit, flows through the Word of God. You have been planted in it by God's grace. Why would you not drink when you've been planted there? Your roots are designed to reach the water. It isn't that your roots fall short at all. No, they are there. You are designed so that you can be green in drought and fruitful when others are barren. That's the imagery used here. You don't have to be barren. You don't have to feel drought. That's not the way that you were made. You were planted by streams of water. You weren't planted away from them. You were planted in them. In them. It is marvelous, isn't it? You know, this oh, it feels really right. Ro- no, come on. Believe what the scripture says. And the root of this system is not mechanical. It's not automatic. The roots work by meditation. Give attention to jesus give attention to the psalms if we're here meditate on him meditate and your roots will touch the water it will it will come flowing from where do the streams of living waters come from within why is it within because you've been planted in streams of water you should be able to experience the blessing of jesus it should be fun It should be. Ah, great stuff, Christian. Come on, it should be like that. And this delight, when you get this delight, this is the wonderful thing. When you get the delight and the pleasure, you suddenly find that actually you've changed. You've changed. It isn't, you know, we must force these character issues into this person. The way that it works is get the delight and the pleasure work because then you can get the character to come through. You can't, you can't make that work without that. The grace of God hits them, and they they change. Isn't that the way that it worked on your life? Isn't that the way that salvation came? God came, you changed. It's never changed. Why do we need to change it? By whacking somebody over the head with behavior. Get them to enjoy Jesus. Get them to get thrilled about the Word of God. Get them filled with the Holy Spirit. Get Get them delighting in this wonderful Savior, and this stuff will just flee. And the battle to avoid the counsel of the wicked and the way of the sinner and the seat of the scoffer and the battle to be righteous and holy and humble, all that sort of stuff, I believe this is a fight that is won by delight. It's won by delight. And that delight is nourished and fed through meditating on him day and night. So here we go, folks. Here's the theological bit. Mrs. Harmon, if you're back listening to iTunes, this is just for you. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? How does this psalm lead us to Jesus? Well, I want to do two things in conclusion. And hopefully, I'd like you to be blessed by them. Because I've hit you with a bit of sin stuff. And maybe some of you need to be hit with it anyway. So not going to ask for forgiveness of that that's the word of God so where does this psalm lead us to Jesus the word righteous in verse 6 presses us toward Christ as our righteousness for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the wicked will perish so the righteous will survive the judgment in the end but who is righteous psalm 14 verse 3 they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 30, 3-4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Answer, none. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man it is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the righteous are the sinful who can somehow be counted as righteous when they're not righteous themselves. How can this be? How can a holy and righteous God not mark iniquity? How can a holy and righteous God not count sin? How can he not require perfect righteousness for a perfect heaven? How can he not do, how does that work then? The answer is that, that righteousness, our righteousness is performed in Christ, in Jesus. The answer is that God does mark iniquity. The answer is that he does count sin. The answer is that he does require perfect righteousness. And that is why the psalm, with all the other psalms, leads us to Jesus, who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God did count sin, and he punished it in his son. He did require righteousness, but he found it in his son. And it was imputed to us so that we would not perish. What do I mean by imputation? I'm referring to the act which God counts sinners to be righteous through faith in Christ on on the basis of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. His blood, his righteousness. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for all sins, the righteous for who? The unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. This gospel truth is part of the living water that causes delight. This is it. This is how it works. This is what we need to meditate on day and night. This is what we need to get the feet going and the emotions stirred about. This is what Psalms wants us to do. It wants us to go like this. I am unrighteous. And he wants us to catch that and feel the emotions of what it means to be unrighteous. It's the journey of the Psalms. My goodness me, I am filthy rags. I am lost. I, I am not acceptable to God. That's what the psalmist tracks us through. And then it brings us to this one conclusion. And the conclusion is, therefore, I will perish. It's awful. Absolutely awful. And then you, the psalmist says, "No, come on, what emotions connect with that? I will die. I am all, all of that stuff comes through. Then the psalmist moves us along. But because of Jesus, I am righteous. Therefore, I will live. And then the idea is that the psalmist says, now what does that feel like? And it feels like sort of, whoa! Does it not? And the problem is that the psalmist puts it there so that you might go, whoa! Whoa! And if you're not going, what? Then this is what the psalmist says, understand your righteousness. You should go here and be in angst and go here and be in delight. Who? Because of Jesus. That's the journey of the Psalms. So, just for the theologically minded, I read a commentary from a blog by a guy called Goldsworthy I read so much of the blog I got confused (laughs) I went in of I went into understanding and out the other side into that I don't know whether you've ever done this where you're reading something and you just find that you're staring (laughs) so I thought I would just give you four lines of the blog This is what Goldsworthy in his commentary on Psalm 1 says. In the final analysis of the righteous, Torah-orientated person who is the object of God's care and preservation is a foreshadowing of the righteous man for us, Jesus Christ. We need to make that connection because the Psalms typically speak of the ideal that in our experience is unattainable apart from experience of being justified in Christ so that's it folks you should feel grim you should feel bursting with happiness it's what the psalms wants us to do and because now we are justified not only that we are blessed Finally, 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 the blessed man. Bear with me. Another complicated thing, but we get there in the end. Blessed is the man who, does not, who, does, who walks in the counsel of the it's, um So I can't, not only can't read blogs, I can't read my own writing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Quote, Phil Harmon. Literally speaking, there is only one person who can thoroughly fulfill Psalm 1. Put phone down. Thanks for that, Phil. (laughs) Actually, it's true, isn't it? There's only one person whose delight is fully in the law of the Lord. Mine isn't. Mine's shameful. Mine is just utterly shameful. Shameful. There's only one person who's never walked in the counsel of the wicked, whose works always prosper, who is in himself the righteous person. Because when I look at Psalm 1, with those words of Phil Harmon echoing down my, in my right ear, I found that I looked at the psalm, and then looked at my, myself, and then looked at the psalm, and looked at myself, and actually came to the conclusion That I couldn't consider myself fully amongst the congregation of the righteous, unless there was something that made me righteous. But if I look at Jesus with the faith of the one who fulfilled Psalm 1 for me, then I have full assurance of what? All the benefits that come. That I can prosper, that I can be clean that I can be the blessed man. Huh. I look at my life, and I don't know whether you do this, but I do this sometimes. I don't know if it's my strict baptisms, but I look at my life sometimes and I consider the guilty charge is rightly pronounced upon me for my sin. I realize that I have no claim to be the blessed man of Psalm 1. And then I see the one who in Psalm 1 fulfills it all. The blessed man Jesus. Who loved his God with all his heart. With all his soul. With all his mind. With all his strength. And at the cross. The guilt due to me for violating God's law. For not delighting it. It all fell upon him. He was punished in my place. He became a curse. So what? So that I could become a blessing. So that I can have blessing I can have blessing the blessed man Jesus made me a blessed man so that I can dwell in the house of the Lord forever blessings Ephesians chapter 1 blessings are ours because of the blessed man he's the blessed man I am in him I am blessed, therefore I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.